Welcome to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle Macklin, your host. You can find my program and other great Catholic radio programming on archangelradio.com. Today, we're talking about happiness with Dr. Jay Budashevsky, author of How and How Not to Be Happy, published by the fabulous Regnery Gateway. Hello. Hello, Michelle. I'm very glad to, uh, to be on your podcast. We're honored that you're taking the time to speak with us. So Dr. Budzhevsky is a professor of government and philosophy at the University of Texas in Austin, where he also teaches courses in the law school and the religious studies department. He specializes in political philosophy, ethical philosophy, legal philosophy, and the interaction of religion with philosophy. Among his research interests are classic natural law, virtue ethics, conscience, and moral self-deception, the institution of the family in relation to political and social order, and religion, public life, and the problem of toleration. So these are these are big topics, and it has led you to the subject of happiness. So let me ask you a question, a book about happiness. Who is this book for? Well, it's for everybody who wants to be happy, which Ought to mean everybody, as I think everybody does really want to be happy, although some people tell themselves that they don't want to be anymore, that they've given up, that they've burned out, there's no point in wanting to be happy. What they mean, really, when they say things like that is, trying to be happy is going to make me unhappy, so I'm going to lower my expectations to not be happy, and then I'll be happier. (laughs) Uh, Well, wait a second. Are we designed to be happy? Well, we are designed to seek happiness. That's certainly true. If we were designed to be happy, happy, it would be very difficult not to be. But since we also are free, we have to make choices about this. And it's very easy to make foolish choices to try to seek happiness in all the wrong ways. And we can make ourselves desperate. Okay, let's talk about what is it to be happy? What is happiness? And you talk about something called abiding happiness. So how do we even define what is happiness to a human being? Yeah, well, I think the first thing that we need to understand is that happiness isn't isn't something that we're feeling. It's something that we're doing. It isn't just an emotion. Emotions and feelings come and go. But happiness is something that does abide. I say it's an activity. Well, what activity is it? It's the activity of living well. It's the activity of flourishing. You rightly said that it has to be something that abides if it's here today and gone tomorrow, if it's fleeting like a bird on the branch. That's not something that we would ordinarily call happiness. We might call that feeling good or being in a good mood. Happiness is something that persists. Happiness is something that that in its full sense, it leaves nothing to be desired, satisfies longing. Is happiness selfish in pursuing happiness? Are we enslaved to that? Is it selfish in our lives to pursue happiness? I hear that from time to time, that it's selfish to pursue happiness. I don't think it's possible not to desire happiness for yourself. If you think that pursuing happiness means looking out for number one, hey, I'm all that matters, get out of my way, babe, then, uh, well, sure, that's selfish. But we are designed in such a way that for us human beings, we're social beings, for us human beings, the good life isn't even a good life unless we can share it with others. If you're looking out for number one, you're not even looking out for number one. You're heading for disaster. We're designed so that our happiness includes the happiness of other people, and we have to care about those around us, and we have to take care of them. The conclusion of your book, I'm going to, I, you know what, I'm going to give a spoiler alert here, but the conclusion of your book, you say that the greatest good 
is not being happy, but knowing God. And that I don't quite say that. No, what do you say? Okay. No, I, I don't quite say it isn't being happy, but it's knowing God. I'd rather say if you look right into the meaning of happiness, it turns out to be knowing God. Thank you. I stand corrected. For your Godphobes, and I love that word, in <laughs> our audience who might be listening, you present arguments based on reason. Right. And you write that you can access your understanding of happiness without going through Christianity or any other kind of faith-based denomination. Is that correct? Yes. I think at at the end, I I give reasonable arguments in, in favor of Christianity too, but I don't just say believe, 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 believe. I say this makes sense given what we know about happiness, given what we know about our unhappiness, even faith. It's not something that you can prove on a blackboard. There is an element of trust here, but faith can be reasonable. It can be reasonable to have faith. Okay. So we can find happiness. Happiness is a rational argument that could possibly lead us to faith. And I, as a believing Christian, I absolutely believe it does lead us to faith. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. I think that's I think that's right. I want to back up and add something to a remark that you made. You said that I'm very careful about Godphobes. Yeah, that's really important because in the book, I know that many of my readers are leery about religion. They're afraid of any talk about God. They think that I'm going to be some crazy person who's going to lead them off the deep end. And I reassure them. I say, look, if you are like that, go ahead. You can read for many, many chapters. There's going to be scarcely a word about anything like God. I'm saving that to the end. If you want to stop reading before you get there, you can do that. And I think that you'll still have a lot of stuff that is applicable to your life. I don't know why anybody would want to do that because that would be like reading to the end of the mystery story and not reading the solution to the mystery because I'm not the kind of person who likes the solutions to mysteries. Uh, Okay, great. (laughs) All right. So folks, read to the end of the book. It's really well worth reading to the end of the book. So you examine some of the goods that we associate with happiness. And basically you ask the question, does happiness lie in this? Does happiness lie in that? Does it lie in this? Right. So let's look at two of those goods. Let's look at wealth and health. Why does happiness or maybe happiness not lie in wealth? Can you take us through that rationality? Yeah. Well, the first thing that I want to say is that although I do try to show that these are false paths to happiness, even a false path must have something plausible about it. Nobody would ever believe in it. Nobody would ever take that false path. There is a grain of truth in the idea that happiness lies in wealth. That grain of truth is that we do, in fact, need certain material goods. I need to have food on the table. I need to have a roof over my head. I need to be able to clothe my family. For goodness sake, even in order to talk to you today, I need my computer. We're, we're speaking to each other. We can actually see each other, although your podcast listeners can't see us. <laughs> And and these are material objects. The mistake lies in thinking, well, since I need that stuff and it's material, therefore, the more material stuff I have, the happier I'll be. And that's the path to complete satisfaction. It isn't. This is a very difficult error to shake people of. Very few people will admit believing that wealth will make them happy. And yet that does seem to be the attitude that they take. I talk to my students. If I say, do you think that wealth will make you happy? Oh, no, no. Wealth can't buy happiness. And I say, why did you choose the major that you have? Well, because I thought I'd be able to make a good living. I'd pull down the big bucks. Some students will choose their major, not even because they're interested. 
in the subject or in the profession that they would go into just because they think that they'll be able to make more money that way. They're assuming basically that money will make, will make them happy and that the more they have of it, the more stuff they can buy, whatever they may think that they need from time to time, the happier they'll be. You know, the interesting thing is, it is true that I don't take attitude surveys and opinion surveys and questionnaires like, are you happy? I don't take those very seriously. They're not reliable. But on the other hand, we can probably trust that if suicide rates are high in a particular community, some a lot of people are desperately unhappy. When people are destitute, suicide rates are rather high. Then they drop. And then suicide rates interestingly climb again among uh, the very wealthy people and especially in wealthy high status communities where they're comparing themselves to each other. They soar. I think this is pretty good evidence that this is not going to lead you to bliss. It's interesting because I'm a canon lawyer and I have to look at, examine families in the context of society, in the context of where they live. And what I have absolutely found out is that People at the very bottom income and people at the very top have the same problems, the exact same problems. They sure. have the uh, the abuse, the drug addiction, the everything goes even into finan- even some of the same financial problems. Debt. Absolutely, people who are very poor have a lot of debt. People who are very rich overextend themselves and have and often have enormous levels of debt too. It is. It's interesting. So it's kind of that middle class. And and I'm not saying that there's some very good poor families or some very good rich families. But yeah, but I'm just saying that as a stereotype and stereotypes come from somewhere is that what I have seen anecdotally. And I just I find that very interesting. Another subject you brought up was health. And I thought that was very interesting in view of the pandemic and what Mm -hmm. we have gone through. Mm -hmm. And we understand I think health and sickness and death, hopefully in different terms than how we went into the pandemic and how that is associated with our well-being. Hopefully we've accepted a little bit more that death and illness are a part of this light on this side of Eden. And we're a little more realistic about it. I don't know if that's true or not, but that is a lesson that we should have drawn from the pandemic. Well, it's a lesson that we should have drawn. And I think perhaps some people have drawn drawn it. But those who weren't already prepared for that lesson, I think, haven't drawn it. They've drawn the opposite conclusion. They've panicked and they've thought, I have to preserve my health at all costs. Everything has to give way for that. I have to uh, destroy my children's social life by isolating them from everybody because they might get sick. I have to stay 12 feet away from everybody. Nobody can be allowed to see my face. I can't see their, see their face. You know, that sounds like a small thing, wearing a mask. Surgeons and nurses wear masks during surgery. Well, wouldn't this make sense? But you know, again, we're social beings. We have to see each other. We communicate so much, not just through bare words, but through our facial expressions. This is why it's, this is why people even invent social uh, facial expressions, emojis, when when there's a text-only communication. Oh, good point. It's also interesting that a statistic that rolled out about a month ago was that there are a lot of unexplained deaths, unexpected deaths that took place during the pandemic and that cannot be attributed to COVID. So now there's different explanations of this. Some people say, well, maybe there are COVID deaths that weren't reported. It's more likely the other way, deaths due to COVID being overreported rather than underreported. A large part of this seems to be that it isn't the disease that is the only thing killing us. It's our reaction to the disease. 
Sure. When people Absolutely. are isolated, they become depressed. They start abusing drugs and, and getting themselves drunk. They fall into tailspin because they can't see anybody else. They can't they can't socialize normally. They are in, in terrible anxiety about their jobs and so forth. And all of these things, we know that these things are associated with, with a higher risk of mortality. It's not just the disease. And paradoxically, an overreaction to the disease is itself unhealthy. Absolutely. It destroyed our happiness. So that's what I mean, yeah. or our pursuit of it or our understanding of it. I know it's it's very painful. I had a friend that committed suicide during this. Oh, so I yeah. I don't think I'm alone. That's no. a sad thing. No, so. I'm afraid you're I'm afraid you're not. A lot of people are terrified of this. I surveyed my students at one point during the pandemic. I said, Do you wear a mask when you are outside in the open air and nobody is nearby? Because I saw many people doing this on campus. Right, sure. And about half of the students said, yes, I do. And the next question was, if you do, why do you? And one of the students just said, well, of course, because I'm terrified. They, people will even admit to, uh, to terror. Now, if nobody is within 100 yards of you, that virus is not going to jump 100 yards. And it, people talk about following the science. The science doesn't tell you the virus is going to jump 100 yards and, and crawl into your lungs and make you sick. There is something else going on here. Now, of course, just like all fallacies, just like all errors, there's a grain of truth here too. It is good to be healthy. It right. is bad to be sick. We cherish life. On the other hand, just like with money, people take this little grain of truth and exaggerate it into something that is false. One of the authors I quote in the book, it's very understandable why he should have said this. He was wrong, but it's very understandable. He was a recovering alcoholic. He commented at one point that he had just had a nightmares the, the previous night of spiders. He said, when you have your health, you have everything. When you don't have your health, you have nothing. I sympathize with him, but that's just not true. You sure. can have a good deal, even if you are sick. Some people do manage to to uh, to experience joy in living when they are ill. You can be healthy and be absolutely miserable. So, right. so sure, try to be healthy. Take reasonable precautions. Don't don't imagine it's the only good in life, and that everything else has to give way. And try to have a little common sense about this. Let me ask you a question here, and this may be facile. I guess it was obliquely addressed in your book. I sometimes believe happiness is a choice, and it's a choice to choose to actually <laughs> to follow the arguments that you espouse, that and this happiness relies on a, a couple of things of gratitude. You say a lot of time that maybe some luck maybe some mm -hmm. good fortune, maybe mm -hmm. some understanding. But what is your feeling on that? I like that way of putting it. I would, uh, I think I would tweak it a little bit. It isn't that happiness is simply a choice as though I choose to be happy. Now I am happy. And I'm sure that's not what you mean. No. But on the other hand, we are continually making choices that bear on our happiness. Making choices well is the very substance of virtue, of good moral character. And virtue, besides having a certain a certain amount of good fortune, yeah, you need to not be uh, destitute and so forth. You need to not be in extreme pain. Besides a certain amount of good fortune, the most important thing to living a good life is going to be virtue, which is all about choice. It's all about making good choices and not bad ones habituating ourselves to those choices. And it's about acquiring the wisdom to know how to make them. Okay. Break this down for us even more. 
when we talk about virtue, mm-hmm. I mean, there, we've got the seven virtues, but what are you talking about when we say virtue, to live a virtuous life, to choose virtue and how virtue leads us to happiness? Virtue is a disposition of character. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion that may seem obvious, but you know, it's surprising how many people have thrown out virtue language and substituted emotional language, like talking about, they're trying to reinvent the wheel. They talk about emotional intelligence and all this sort of thing. Emotions have something to do with it. The virtuous person, for instance, is he is going to feel the right things in the right ways at the right times for the right reasons toward the right people, you know, to the right degree. But fundamentally, virtue is about choice. So for instance, let's take, um, you mentioned the seven virtues, the four cardinal virtues, the three spiritual virtues, which are really sort of tag names for a whole for seven departments of lots of and lots of little virtues. Let's take courage, for instance, fortitude. It's not as though if you're fearless, you are then courageous. There are times when you ought to have fear. You ought to listen to your fear. You ought to retreat from an impossible situation. You ought to say, this guy is coming at me with a knife and I need to run away. You may be a soldier this or a commander of soldiers, and you have to recognize this is not the time to advance. We need to retreat so that we can fight another day because we have we are facing overwhelming force uh, on the battlefield right now. There is a time to retreat. Somebody who never knows that he should have any fear, never listens to it, doesn't know when it's appropriate to do that, is not courageous, he's rash. But at the other extreme, somebody who always listens to fear, he is unreasonably fearful, he can never get up his spirit and face anything that arouses fear, that's a coward. So you have to choose in the particular situation, what is the right degree of caution and what is the right degree of boldness that that I need to exercise here? And habitually guided by wisdom, habitually being able to choose the right path here is courage. So this is why I say that it's a disposition of character, a habit of the heart, you might say, but of the mind also of wisdom involving choice. I love that you use courage. I have three sons. My husband is an army officer, retired army officer. Uh, Two of my sons are army officers. Mm. And he's always said that you become courageous by being courageous, by doing hard things. Because if you do the, the habit of the hard things, then when the hard things really come, you have the courage to do those hard things. So it's always about challenging yourself. It's always about really overcoming that fear of failure, of being courageous in the small things so that you're courageous in the big things. That's absolutely right. Now, it's true that what what Christians call the infused virtues or the spiritual virtues like faith, hope, and charity, these depend on something that we can't work up in ourselves by just always doing the right thing. They depend on the actual infusion of God's grace. Although even there, we're not passive because we have to cooperate with that grace. We have to to say yes to it. We have to accept it. We have to, to work with it. But the ordinary, this worldly virtues, fortitude and so forth, you become virtuous by doing... You becoming you become brave, courageous by doing the courageous thing over and over, resisting the, the temptation not to. You become just by doing the just thing over and over, even though you might be tempted to cheat the cashier. You know, you become you learn the virtues of friendship by exercising them. So that it's like, you know, in limestone caverns, the way that the stalag mites build up, it drips, 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 and every little right. 
makes that stalagmite a little bit taller and a little bit taller. Every little drip, drip, drip makes the stalactite hanging from the ceiling a little bit longer, reaching down. Virtue is like that too. Each choice is with that little drip that is either building up that virtue or it is eroding that virtue. And we have to keep making the right ones. That's how we become virtuous. You talk about beauty Mm -hmm. and you talk about your childhood and loving the moon and the beauty behind the moon. And you still like the moon and the stars. Mm -hmm. Why is that important? Why is something like that important to the discussion that we are having now to happiness? Well, the reason that it's important is this, you know, you can have, people will notice, well, I I may have wealth. Well, there must be something more. I have pleasure. Gee, this is getting old. I have fame. There must be something more. But you know, it's more than that. You can have everything that this world offers. You can have it all, as they say, and still say, is this all there is? There is some longing in us that cannot be quenched, cannot be satisfied by anything in the created order. So to cut a long story short, the reason I start talking about the, the, the beauty of the moon is because it was one of the first things that cued me into this. When I looked at the moon, it wasn't just that I thought it was beautiful. I wanted something. I was longing for something. And I may have thought it's only the beauty of the moon, but it wasn't just that because I could, here I was beholding the beauty of the moon and I wasn't satisfied. You know, a Freudian would say, oh, your longing for the beauty of the moon is just a sublimation of your desire for a woman. Well, no, it isn't that. I've been married for 50 years. Love is sweet. But here is the thing about amorous embraces. They quench amorous desire. They don't quench this other longing, which is like the longing for the moon that's aroused alongside of it. When I, right. look at, when I look at my wife's face, I see her physical beauty, yes, but there's something else that is reflected from it that isn't physical, that I seem to be seeing, a vision of this something else that I long for. We say that love has the, and beauty and many other experiences have the fragrance of eternity, and yet the beauty of the moon is not eternal. My, my wife's face will not be eternal. Each of us will die sometime. Some What is it that's eternal? I want that. I long for this. This is a universal experience. You can be an atheist and you have this longing. What is it for? Now, some people try to invent explanations of this. They'll say, well, you have a longing so that you will continue to strive. We have genes for longing so that we'll continue to strive and the human race will achieve things. Well, why not just have genes for striving? A longing is directed to something. It says, just like hunger is for food, a longing is for something. What is it for? It's not for anything in this world. Hmm. People say, well, you're looking at the moon. What you're merely experiencing is the genetic response to the sight of faraway vistas. Our ancestors evolved on the savannas. And so if we weren't adapted to the sight of faraway things, we wouldn't have uh, fared very well and passed on our genes to the next generation, including the gene that makes us like like wide open spaces. Well, that's that doesn't really explain it, does it? I like a lot of small things that aren't far away. Explain to me what the evolutionary advantage is of feeling a sense of a haunting and the arousal of longing when I hear Johann Sebastian Bach's air on the string of G. It moves me to tears every time. Why? There's, how does that help me to pass on my genes to my descendants? All of these explanations in terms of this worldly, uh, this worldly uh, phenomena for this mysterious longing 
that so many people feel really fall short. Now, here's a problem. Is this longing an illusion? Somebody might say, well, okay, you have this longing and who knows why you have it, but that's tough. It's not for anything. It just makes you feel like there's something. Why would I have it then? Even the old pagan Aristotle knew that nature makes nothing in vain. Everything in me is for something. I have eyes so that I can see. I have ears. Why? So that I can hear. I have hunger. Why? So that I will get food that nourishes me. I desire friendship. Why? Because because I'm a social being and I need that too. And it is a possibility. A desire, therefore, has to be for something or it's pointless. And that something has to exist or it's pointless. And if that something doesn't exist in the created order, then it must be the creator. Mm. Mm, There you go. Wow. So we have, we suffer from desire and we understand that limited goods are actually anticipation of something more, of a reflection of something even greater than what we are experiencing. I think that's right. I commented on on the fact that I feel this longing not only when I gaze upon the face of the moon, but when I gaze on the face of my wife. That is because I many husbands and wives have seen this in the face of the beloved. It's as though there's a light from some faraway place that you can't even identify, illuminating the face. I heard, I, I read one writer who just tossed off the comment. <laughs> it wasn't even a book about love. It was somebody talking about good manners of all things and said that when you gaze upon the face of the beloved, it can be as though as though the beloved's face is encrusted with gems. Now, why is that? I think that this is a a vision Hmm. of the beloved in beatitude. I think you're getting a glimpse, a reflection of how God sees that person. And really what this is about is the longing to see the face of God. Okay, let me ask you a question. If we cannot satisfy a profound natural longing in the natural order, How are we to be truly happy? Well, you're going to have to go beyond the natural order, right? God is the creator of nature. He's not part of the natural order. He's the maker of the natural order. If it's not something that can be satisfied within the natural order, we have to go, so to speak, out of this world. And I'm not talking about Mars. I will concede. We do not have the full experience of the glory of the face of God in this life. You know, I talk to people, faithful Christians, faithful Catholics all the time who say, well, you know, I go to church, I go to mass and I pray and I believe all this stuff and I try to live as God wants me to live and I try to be open to his grace, but I'm not fulfilled. And I say, well, of course you're not fulfilled. We won't be fulfilled until we see him face to face. We won't be fulfilled until the next life. But we have flashes and anticipations of that now, and that's nothing to sneeze at. That's something genuine. And in the meantime, even those things short of that, the vulnerable, partial, incomplete happiness of this life is still worth pursuing. I can have friends. I can raise my family. I can take care of things that are uh, genuinely precious. Can we know God on this side of the light? Well, we can know, Thomas Aquinas says, and uh, I think he's right about this, we can know that God is. We can know a lot about God. We can actually be in a personal relationship with him, which which involves a kind of knowledge, but we aren't actually seeing him in his own essence. 
because our minds are not, our, our created mental faculties are not up to that job. I can understand a, a flower to some degree, a bee to some degree, a work of art that I've made to some degree, my wife to some degree, but I can't see God that way because I can't apprehend him with my senses, right? I can't, I can't see him with my physical eyes. I can't hear him with my physical ears. He is going to have to uplift me by his grace. He's going to have to supernaturally elevate my powers of beholding him with my mind so that I'm beyond my natural powers. And that's part of what grace is about. Grace helps me with all kinds of this worldly situations. You know, you try to live a good life, you try to live a virtuous life, and you hit the wall. You find, I can't conquer my bad temper. I can't conquer this. And grace helps you to break through that. But the greatest gift of grace is going to be in the next life when he supernaturally elevates us so that we can actually see him. As Paul says, now we see, now we see as though in a mirror. As though that's in a darkened glass, but then we will see face to face. And that's what we're talking about. That will be the perfect happiness of which the happiness of this world is, is at best only an impartial, fragmentary, vulnerable anticipation. That will be the perfect happiness that lulls all desire, leaves nothing further to be desire, is completely fulfilling, is what we were made for. We have a society today that is antithetical to what you're saying. And you talk oh, yeah. about transhuman ideology yes. and what that means. And I think we are seeing the harsh manifestation of this now, whether it's the war in Ukraine, whether it's the transsexual gender ideology, all the craziness that's just been unleashed in the last couple of years. What is that? Explain that to our listeners. I just said that we need to see God, right? You know, I said our natural powers are not up to seeing God. He's going to have to raise us. But a transhumanist says, well, we can, you know, that's no problem. There is no God. What we can do is become gods. We can change human nature. Hmm. There's one physicist who claims that in the end, we're going to be having our, our minds operating at speeds that asymptotically approach infinity. We'll be able to really shape space and time as, as we want to. One biotech engineer a couple of decades ago on NPR said that our powers are going to be so great with genetic manipulation and cybernetics and uh, computer chips implanted in the brain and all this sort of thing. He says, we are literally going to become God. We're going to be able to be as powerful as God is. That's transhumanism. And it's terrifying. We've been through that before. That is the meaning of, of the language of wanting to be God in the story of the fall in the garden. It seems that we never quite learn our lesson. The tower, the story of Babel, it's the same thing again. People wanted to build a tower that reaches the heavens. Well, was this a literal tower or a physical tower? I don't know, but we're trying to build a tower that reaches the heavens again. We're trying to elevate ourselves to the level of being gods. You can't do that. You can intoxicate yourself in the idea of your own godhood, and that's, that is one of the surest ways to lose out utterly and completely and eternally on meeting the true God. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you brought up a great point that to raise society to be God there's people that dominate that will tell other people. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, it's crazy talk because what is the one drug that human beings cannot, cannot resist? And that's power. 
and power over other human beings, right? Yeah, yeah. you know, C.S. Lewis wrote a wrote a book about this. It was called The Abolition of Man. Sure. He, he didn't use the word transhumanism. The word had been invented yet, but it was not very widely known. And he comments, he says, people say, man is going to conquer nature. What they mean is that some men are going to conquer other men with nature as their instrument. Yep. Yep. You know, I say, well, I'm going to... I'm going to change the next generation. They're going to have certain kinds of genes. They didn't choose those genes, did they? I'm going to have give us all genes for chimpanzee muscles. I'm going to have processors so that we can know we can think twice as fast. And it, they say the silliest things. I, I read a uh, an editorial by some enthusiasts of this in of all places, the Wall Street Journal. You would think that this is a very staid, respectable publication. Sure. And, and there was these wild eyed dreamers were saying opened their article by saying. How would you like to be able to hear every conversation in a crowded room? And they gave several other examples like that. Well, that's not attractive because of the enhancement of our powers. That's creepy. I don't want to be listening to all those other people. Right. Sure. Yeah. Talk about enhancing people, making them higher, surpassing human nature. This is the next generation of humans. That's not what it is. It's about destroying humanity. It's one of the follies of trying to have ultimate happiness, in this case, by turning ourselves into gods, which means some people being gods to other people. And this is just a boring because it's just been repeated through history time and time again, and it just keeps failing. So very interesting. Okay. Final question. Okay. Jesus Christ, he's on the cross. He dies a horrible death, a horribly violent death. Mm Mm-hmm. To bring us closer to God, to bring us to him. How do we continence happiness with that event? I think that many theories of happiness really overlook. There may be all kinds of advice. Some of it good advice. Do this, do that. Even some of the advice that I gave before, the sort of worldly wise man's view of happiness, uh, practice the virtues and hope for good fortune, right? Right, sure. (laughs) Um, what that doesn't face is the problem of suffering. Hmm. What yep. does, that doesn't, especially that doesn't face the suffering that we've brought upon ourselves through our sin. This is a God who took our suffering upon himself. That's how much he loves us. And even the suffering that we experience can have redemptive value because we offer it to him to be united with his own suffering by his grace. That is That is a distinctively Catholic insight. It is one of the most moving things about the gospel. It is the the discovery that this actually works. You can offer, you can embrace your sorrow, you can carry your cross, you can offer your suffering to God. And it isn't that you stop suffering, but you can experience joy even in that suffering. We have the example of the martyrs singing while they're in prison of this sort of thing. It, It is transformative. And that's what we want. We know that now it's the the transhumanists are right about one thing. Human nature was not meant to be just human nature. We were made, our nature was designed to anticipate the grace that God gives us to lift us up to him. The problem with the transhumanists is they try to dispense with grace and we lift ourselves up to Godhood. But we were meant for something more. We need to be transformed. We need to be forgiven. We need to be fixed, but we need to be elevated and transformed. And that's only by the grace of God. Amen. Amen. I tell you, to my listening audience, this is a fabulous book. Dr. Bujashevsky, 
<laughs> takes he takes some very complex. I mean, he takes really he goes into the a heart the heart of a lot of the arguments of Thomas Aquinas. So we don't see people now. <laughs> I know, uh, and actually brings them down to a very workable and usable level to help us understand what is happiness and ultimately to help us understand ourselves a little better, bit better, and to help us understand our humanity a little better and that our humanity comes to its fullness by the grace of God at the foot of the cross. And it really, it's such a profound book and it would be a great Lenten read for the Christians and the Catholics. If you're not Christian or you're not Catholic, it's just a great book about the human experience. And that's, that's all. I mean, I can't say anything more about this book. It is a great book and everyone needs to go and get this book. Well, I really want to thank you, sir, for taking time this afternoon to talk to us about this fabulous book. I hope it is a very successful book. It should be. It's so well-written and it's such, it's something that is so needed right now at this time in our cultural history and where we are in space and time. So I think this is a really good book. Well, thank you, Michelle. I've really enjoyed being on the on the podcast today. It's absolutely been a delight. Thank you so much, my listening audience. And you've been listening to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle Macklin, your host. You can find my program and other great Catholic radio programming on archangelradio.com. All right. Thank you all. God bless. Thank mm-hmm. you.